What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 52 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are still ongoing processes. This episode we're speaking with Jim Knight. Jim has been studying professional learning, effective teaching and instructional coaching for over two decades. He's a research associate within the Centre for Research and Learning within Kansas University and has written a whole raft of excellent educational books, including Instructional Coaching, A Partnership Approach, Unmistakable Impact, High Impact Instruction, Focus on Teaching and The Impact Cycle, which is the focus of today's conversation. Jim is an absolute expert at the art and science of coaching, and his knowledge, wisdom, and skill really shines through in this interview. I'm particularly excited about this interview because we got super hands-on, and we actually do a live coaching session within the interview. The interview was recorded in two parts. Prior to part one, I sent Jim a video of my classroom, and the first half of the podcast includes a coaching session following his watching of that video. I then went away and tried some things out, and we came back about two weeks later to record the second half of the interview in which we reflect on my progress and dive more deeply into the theory and practice of instructional coaching. It was an absolute privilege to have the opportunity to work with Jim in this way and I hope that you take as much from it as I did. I'm also happy to share that this episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational and this month we're featuring a book that fits perfectly with the instructional coaching theme of today's podcast. One of the key elements of instructional coaching is supporting teachers to learn ideas, strategies and techniques that are likely to support them to achieve their goals in the classroom. For this purpose, coaches need quick to reference and easily digestible guides that detail these techniques with enough detail to get going but enough flexibility to adapt to the individual teacher's classroom. Enter one of the newest books from John Cat Educational, Teaching Walkthroughs, Volume 2. This second book in the Teaching Walkthrough series by Tom Sherrington and Oliver Caviglioli summarises 70 super valuable ideas, strategies and techniques in teaching and breaks them down into five bite-sized steps across a double-page spread. It's a lovely format and perfect to dip in and out of. It would be a particularly great book for a staff room or on a coffee table for easy and frequent reference. In Volume 2 of Teacher Walkthroughs, Tom, Oliver and guest authors cover a whole host of topics from online training to supporting students to get better at public speaking, selective marking, flashcards, dealing with lesson disruptions, the idea of cognitive apprenticeship and much more besides. If you're keen to get your hands on Walkthroughs Volume 2 and you'd like 30% off from John Cat Educational, then jump onto johncatbookshop.com and enter the code ERRR30 at checkout. That code will also work for any other book from John Cat, including my own book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, a book that Dylan William referred to as, quote, a book that I think every teacher should read. Once again, for 30% off Cognitive Load Theory in Action, Teacher Walkthroughs Volume 2, or any other JCE book, just enter ERRR30 at checkout. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 52 of the ERRR podcast with Jim Knight. Jim Knight, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. 
It's great to be here. I'm excited about today's conversation. I've never had a conversation like this, so I can't wait to sort of have a, a podcast that deconstructs coaching. That's the way I'm thinking about it. Awesome. Jim, first question, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Jim, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Depends. But I would say my goal is the driving force behind everything I do is keep working until every student everywhere gets excellent instruction in every class every day. And every student is every student and everywhere is everywhere. And so that's the force behind what I do. And that's the force behind our little company is we're trying to figure out how can we do things, make them more simpler and more powerful and more accessible and deeply respectful of the profession of teaching. So that's kind of our work. So I'm trying to make that that mission become real, I guess. Love that. Very mission-focused answer. Right. The second question we always ask guests here on the ERRR is, what do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Well, I'm hesitant to project it onto other people, but my thinking would be the purpose of coaching is to support what happens in schools. And I see that as working to improve the well-being and the achievement of students. So I want, I think that education should address the whole child. And engagement isn't just that I'm listening to the teacher, but that I feel a sense of belonging. I have hope and I have friends. I feel like I'm in the right place. I, I feel like people who like me here and uh, I'm realizing my purpose as a person. And so part of school is about addressing that aspect, the, the well-being of the child, and but to accomplish those goals that students have hope about, they need pathways to the goals, that's where achievement's important. So they're, to me, really, really equally important. They overlap a lot as well, too. Achievement and well-being. Wonderful. Wonderful. And so today we're talking about coaching. Jim, did you want to just give us a brief, brief bit of history about how you ended up with such a focus and such renown, really, in regards to coaching? Gee, I don't know about renown, but I worked with young adults who had learning disabilities. I knew nothing about learning disabilities, but I was given this group of students to work with. And I was the least experienced educator, actually, in the college I worked in, which is why I got the class. And we had someone there. Her name was Dee LaFrance. She was kind of like a coach. We didn't use that term back then. She was training us on all these practices for working with students with learning disabilities. I literally didn't even, hadn't heard of the term. So I looked at my students' writing samples, and I was teaching writing, communications. And I was like, man, I need help. And so I went to her and I said, can you help me with these students? And she said, well, I've got these writing strategies. You want to try out the writing strategies. And so together, we implemented a class that used these writing strategies, and it worked great. All 10 students stayed in the program. Uh, five of them went to the next level. They wrote a letter to the president to save the course. The course got an award. I got a full-time job. And when you, when you work with students who have a history of failure, and you see them succeed, and you see what that means, and writing is so cool for that because it's tangible. You can see right in front of you, look, this is what it was, this is where you are. And when you see that kind of success, you want to spread the word. So I started to become a trainer. I went to Kansas. I was living in Toronto at the time. Came to Kansas to become a trainer, got certified as this professional developer. I did workshops and they had no impact. I handed out postcards to everybody back when he had the Lixis stamps. And I said, you know, write me about your success stories. You're going to love this. This stuff made such a difference for me and my students. I can't wait to hear what you do. Nobody wrote me a postcard. And so it was really clear that it, it, although people loved the material, they weren't implementing, that the workshop wasn't working. And Michael Fullen was at the University of Toronto at that time and still has a position there, I believe. And he was gracious enough to work with me and he had me read a whole bunch of books about educational change 
I read everything he'd written up to that point. That's when he was writing a book called Change Forces. It gave me the early draft of a few chapters and it changed forces. And so I decided I wanted to do my doctorate on change and went to the University of Kansas where I'd learned about those strategies. First off, I studied workshops and then I did another qualitative study of teachers' perceptions of professional development. It's called, I presented at AERA, AERA. It's called Another Damn Thing I Gotta Do, Teacher Perceptions of Professional Development, which is a quote. I probably wouldn't use that title today, but that's the one I was in the presentation. And then I did my doctorate on uh, the philosophy behind professional development that would be honoring professionals, but at the same time making change happen. I call the partnership approach. And then we got another grant to work on. And we're sitting around the table saying, well, if we're going to get teachers to work with us, we need to, you know, we'll have to go in the classroom and show them what to do. And we'll have to meet with them and discuss them. I mean, we're not just going to do a workshop and they're going to go do it. They're going to need support. And someone at the table, I don't know who, I can't remember who said, well, if we know that's true now, why don't we do that all the time with professional development? Why do we just keep doing these workshops that don't have any impact? And so then that day, the idea was launched. And initially I studied uh, what I called learning consulting. But in 1998, I wrote a little paper on learning consulting. Then in uh, 1999, we won a pretty large grant, Topeka, Kansas, which is famous for Brown versus Board of Education and major legislation around uh, equity in the United States. We called them instructional collaborators, people who had these roles that were central to our project. And then about 19... Around 2003 or 2004, I wrote an article for, for a, a journal here called the Journal of Staff Development, and they accepted it. And when I got it back, I thought, I'm going to change the name from instructional collaborator to instructional coach. I think that's a better term. I sent it back. I'd never seen anything about instructional coaching at that point. And then the rest is kind of history. Then I, a couple of years later, my book came out on instructional coaching and, you know, we've done a, an awful lot of research over a couple of decades and just kind of continually try to get better that that's how it all kind of came to be so i never set out to study coaching i set out to study what's it take to get high quality teaching practices in the hands of teachers in a way that honors the professionalism of teachers and out of that grew instructional coaching and now like in the united states there's a massive number of instructional coaches but we did it. i remember the first time i heard a person at a conference say i'm an instructional coach and i had hey that's our word like i was kind of but isn't that cool she thinks she's an instructional coach that's our thing and and now it's like everywhere. So in a nutshell, what is instructional coaching? Well, I think there are probably different definitions, but we would say an instructional coach partners with teachers. So that part is that the power is equal. And uh, in fact, if anybody has more power in the relationship, it should be the teacher because I'm helping the teacher work on their class with their students. So an instructional coach partners with teachers. One way to put it is the teacher sits in the big chair. I sit in the little chair. It's a phrase that Dan Pink uses. And they help teachers through partnership. They partner with teachers to help the teacher get a clear picture of reality in the classroom. Most professionals don't have a really clear picture of what it looks like when they do what they do. Not, not, it doesn't matter what the profession is for a number of reasons. And then to set goals, then to identify strategies to hit those goals, changes that would help you get to the goal. Then they help the teacher learn those strategies, and then they make uh, modifications until the goal has been hit. So uh, that's, that's kind of what, it ha- what happens. So the coach, the coach has expertise, but they don't act like an expert. So they know about some core, high-yield, high-impact teaching strategies. They know them inside out, and they can share them. But everything is driven by the goal set by the teacher, by the teacher's perceptions of their clear picture of reality. The teacher is a decision-maker in the process. Because the reality is the teacher is a decision-maker in the process. They're not going to do what you tell them to do. So that's, that's the thing. Mm. 
Your description there uh, reminds me of a distinction you made in your book, which was between facilitative dialogic versus directive coaching. I thought that was a really interesting and valuable framework. Would you share with the listeners a little bit about that kind of three ways of thinking about coaching? Well, I think it, first off, I'd say it's important, I think, that people are clear on what they're trying to accomplish because they might get professional development in one model and be asked to do a different model. That's a bit like being trained to be a dentist and asked to do brain surgery. I mean, you need to have the right kind of training or preparation. So usually coaching is divided into two categories, facilitative and directive. And so growth coaching that's offered in Australia through Growth Coaching International is a facilitative model. In the facilitative model, the coach recognizes the expertise of the collaborating person. And we could say the term coachee. And through excellent coaching skills, in particular questioning and listening and, and noticing, they help the teacher get really clear on it, or the person being coached, help them get really clear on a goal. And that leads to action on the part of the, the coachee, clarity, and energy. They go, oh, I, I can, now I know what I'm going to do. And in the facilitative approach, usually the, the coach doesn't share expertise. If you're going to share a suggestion or give advice, you'd be stepping out of the role of being a coach. And so the, despite the overwhelming temptation sometimes to say, oh, here's what I think you should do, the facilitative coach wouldn't do that because it would be stealing the opportunity for the coach to learn and solve their own problem, besides which we probably overestimate our advice anyway, as Michael Bungay Stanier would say. Now, the directive coach is someone whose job is to get people to do something the way they describe it. And the directive coach is an expert who essentially tells other people how to do what they need to do. They're directive. They're not facilitative. The assumption behind the facilitative approach is this person already need, knows what they need to do. And I just help, have to remind them of it or help them become more aware or help them organize their thinking or clarify goal. But they already have the knowledge they need. And the directive approach is I have to make sure they know this thing. And in many cases, they don't know what to do. So my job is to make sure they do it. So a directive coach might say something like, I'm going to give you a few glows and growths. I'm going to tell you some things that went well and some things you need to work on. Or the directive coach might be all about, we need to learn this program. My job is to make sure you learn it. <clears throat> now, the trouble is, what we know about human motivation is that that directive approach usually doesn't work with professionals. It kind of deprofessionalizes teachers because it possesses them. It oversimplifies teaching in some cases, and it, it, it takes away the capacity of the teacher to make decisions about what happens in their class. So in between directive and facilitative is dialogical coaching, which is instructional coaching, or the way we do it. But instructional coaching starts in a facilitative realm. But if we reach a point where the teacher is stuck and the teacher doesn't know how to move forward, then I would say something like, do you mind if I share some ideas I've got about how you might gather data? And so, as I said, the, the dialogical coach is an expert, but they don't work like an expert. And they don't share ideas in a way that would rob the capacity of the teacher to be able to make their own decisions. They just add a little bit to the conversation. If we have a teacher who's really keen to use formative assessment and really doesn't know what to do about it, and we have a person who's spent you know, years Dylan William learning about formative assessment, it seems kind of crazy that they wouldn't share it, but you can share it in a way that still positions the teacher as the decision maker. And so facilitative is focused on asking, directive is focused on telling, and dialogical is balancing asking with telling, or balancing telling with asking. So I make a statement, but it's really more like a question. I never tell the person what to do. And like I said, often instructional coaches never move into the dialogical part because the teacher already knows what they need to do. They're already ready to go. And if they don't know, 
then the coach is ready to have tools. But the coach is not solving their problem. It's still philosophically still exactly the same as the facilitative approach. I guess the one thing I'd say about the dialogical approach is there is a body of literature on effective instruction. And billions of dollars has been spent researching instruction. And so it would be, to me, silly when it comes to instruction not to have a coach who knows about that and can help people come aware of it when they need it, to ignore that. On the other hand, instructional coaching is not going to work in a lot of areas where that are beyond the scope of instructional coaching. Instructional coaching is really focused on what happens in the classroom. So if, if I'm trying to be more organized in my time management or I'm trying to have more balance in my life or trying to figure out how to work better with my team, then the facilitative approach totally makes sense. And also instructional coaching takes more time. And so the facilitative approach is something you can do in one conversation where it's instructional coaching, it's going to be over a series of weeks. So they have both have their strengths. But directive, I would say there are times you need to be directive, but it's rare. If you hear someone say a microaggression or some other kind of racist statement, that's a time to become directive. Or if a teacher has really low expectations for students, that's a time to be directive. But I would say a coach, an instructional coach, is a teacher talking to a teacher. So if I'm going to be directive with a teacher as a coach, it should be in the same situation where I would do it if we were co-teachers. There's times as a teacher with another teacher that I'd say, look, what you just said really stereotypes people in ways that I, I think I think you need to rethink that or something. You come up with a directive response. Mm. That's that's a really powerful way to put it, I think, Jim, and to that really actually acknowledges that consciously builds a, a power dynamic that's, you know, of of equals, as you put it. That's, that's really good. Um one other thing on this kind of dialogic idea, you use the metaphor of a of a or the analogy of a waiter in your book right. as kind of the coach. Could you want to share that? Because I think listeners would really benefit from that metaphor. So I don't think I've ever seen it. The restaurant, the Cheesecake Factory, did they have that in Australia? You seen that? We've got a cheesecake shop. I don't know if we've got the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, cheesecake Factory is a big restaurant. When you go there, they give you a menu. The menu has like, I don't know, 200 pages. It's heavy, you know. It's kind of awe-inspiring to look at this thing. But you're like, where do I begin? Look at all these things I could have. It's amazing. And if you have a really good server, then, then she or he's going to come over and say, well, what kind of things do you like? And can I help you make your decision? And they know the menu inside out. They have expertise. They help you pick and choose. They don't tell you what to pick. They just make it easier for you to make a choice. And in a, in a sense, that's what instructional coach is like. It's like a sommelier in a fancy restaurant. You know, she knows the wine inside out. She can come to you with a wine list that's overwhelming, but with good questions, she can help you make a choice because she has the expertise. She can help you pick the perfect wine for your, whatever it is you're going to have. So that's the idea. They're a curator of knowledge. Okay. And, and I guess, yeah, in the coaching partnership, that's the, the role that that dialogic coach would take as well. Right. That's wonderful. What about evidence for the effectiveness of instructional coaching, Jim? I know that a bunch of meta-analyses have come out over recent years that suggest that, for example, instructional coaching is one of the most reliable ways of improving instructions of teachers and student outcomes. In terms of your approach, the impact cycle and things like that, what evidence is there that it works? Well, we did one study that I presented at ERA in 2009 in San Diego, where we did a workshop and then randomly assigned teachers into two groups. And one group had coaching, one group didn't have coaching. And the difference in terms of implementation, quality of implementation, expectation of continued implementation was pretty staggering. It was something like 85% to 30% in terms of the, in terms of fidelity of implementation, it was 
a seven out of 10 for the coach group and one, one or two out of 10 for the uncoach group. That paper's on instructionalcoaching.com. If you click on the research tab, you can find it. And then we did another study, a multiple baseline design. Now the numbers are kind of small, but the effect size was 1.02. And that effect size was measuring impact on students, but we were looking at engagement because engagement is pretty easy to measure. Just go in and look at how the kids were. We had observers who didn't know if they were observing a coach class or a non-coach class. They were just going in and observing the data. And so the impact was pretty, pretty large. There are many other studies that have come out recently that look at coaching. This is just my opinion, and maybe people won't agree with this, but I, I think we're doing a big study right now looking at student achievement and coaching. But I think that the focus on achievement, although totally understandable, is not, the, is not where the attention should be. The focus should be on how effective is the coaching. Is the coaching really leading to high quality, powerful implementation of practices? And if it is, great. And if it isn't, then we need to keep improving. So yes, I understand why people would say does instructional coaching lead to achievement? And we have a lot of informal studies to support it, and we're doing more and more research to look at that. But really, to me, the important question is, is the coaching leading to high quality implementation of proven practices? And because uh, what they're, what instructional coaching is doing is helping people implement practices. If there's a change in achievement, it's probably because of teaching practices, not because of coaching. To me, to study coaching and then ask about achievement, it's a little bit like if, if I was creating a really nice truck to drive cancer treatments to hospitals and somebody said to me, does your truck, does it cure cancer? I'd say, no, what it does is it delivers the, the samples to the hospitals. And so instructional coaching is getting those practices in place. And while when we look at effective practices, we should see a real impact on achievement. The real question about achievement is what are those teaching practices that make a difference? So any rate, there are, we have a website, instructionalcoaching.com, and we have a research section, and we have a lot of presentations we've conducted. And then there are many other studies recently that have come out that support its impact on teaching practice and teacher efficacy and, and student achievement. Mm, wonderful. Uh, there's something I'm trying to understand here because there's, there's a bit of, there's a bit of attention here. I'm trying to understand it. So one of the things I really loved about your model was the way in which the whole coaching is framed around the teacher's goal. So for example, that goal, and that's an objective and measurable goal. So for example, that goal might be, I want to increase engagement in my class from 60 to 90% or something like that. And within that, that gives the coach and the coachee flexibility to actually kind of negotiate around the strategies that they use because, for example, if this is what you write in your book, if the coachee says, oh, I want to try this strategy, the coach thinks, oh, I don't really think that's going to work. But that's okay because we've got this goal and you can try that out. You can try out the strategy you want to try out and we'll see if it gets as close to the goal. If it doesn't, doesn't then we'll try something different. So there's, there's that which I, thought was a, which I thought and think is a real strength of your model. But then there's also this idea, which in many ways I agree with, that the, the quality of coaching you know, and just looking at the coaching is measured by the fidelity of the implementation of the strategy. So I see there's a tension there. Can you, can you help me understand more? Yeah, probably I wouldn't use the word fidelity although I might have already used it, but I think what you want is high quality implementation. You want an implementation that works. And so this is kind of a roundabout way to answer the question, but when you learn something, you usually don't learn it by reading a book or in a workshop. You learn it by doing the thing. So a swimmer, for example, can watch a lot of YouTube videos, but it's not until she gets in the water and starts to swim that she's able to see if she can do it or not. And so what instructional coaching does is it provides a chance for people to new, learn new practices in real life. 
way I have my little catchphrase for this is real learning happens in real life. And the way the coach does that is the coach partners with the teacher, gets a clear picture of current reality, partners with the teacher to identify a goal that a goal that really matters deeply to the teacher. Now the teacher says, I really, you know, if we could do that, that'd be great. I really want to do that. And it could be, like you said, kids feel psychologically safe in school. They feel comfortable talking. Um, they have hope. It could be that they're able to write a well-organized piece of writing. It could be any number of different things. So we've got this goal that really matters to the teacher. And now that we have the goal that really matters to the teacher, we have a real-life situation. Now, either the teacher identifies strategies they want to try to hit the goal, or the coach shares them when necessary. And so you're not going to be able to hit those goals unless you use the strategy effectively. The effectiveness of a teaching practice for me is does it have an impact on the quality of kids' lives or on their achievement? And so you're... You're, what the coach is helping the teacher do is get really effective at the way in which they use the practice so it can have an impact on kids. So that's the way it works. And I, I think a focus on fidelity might not lead to fidelity because we can check off everything on the box, but if it doesn't do anything for kids, who cares? You know. So the question really is, what impact does it have on students? So, so instructional, this is what makes coaching necessary is it is a partnership where the coach sets up real-life learning opportunities and makes it really easier for the teacher by knowing about the materials, by sharing in a way that honors the decision-making of the teacher. You know, by being a sec second set of hands, a second set of eyes, by monitoring pro progress, by building things up. Another way to think about it is when you look at hope theory, which really comes from this town, Lawrence, Kansas, the University of Kansas, Rick Snyder and Shane Lopez. Instructional coaching has... Uh, these elements that we do, and they're really aligned with hope theory. And hope theory says, first off, if I want to have hope, I have to have something I'm hoping for, a preferred future or a goal. And then I need pathways to get to the goal. And then I have agency, a belief that I can hit those goals. And what a coach does is helps the teacher get clear on the preferred future. And if you're not clear on where you want to go, you're not going to go anywhere. So you have to get clear on what's the preferred future. Then helps the teacher identify pathways to the goal. And that by monitoring what's happening in the classroom, working with adaptations to what happens, they're going to build agency because as the teacher sees progress step by step, they're going to be more confident. It's what B.J. Fogg says when he looks at habits. You know, tiny steps, little successes build agency. That's, the, that's kind of how I see it. Mm -hmm. That's great. I'm, <laughs> sorry, Jim. I'm, I'm sticking on this point a little bit because I'm still trying, to, still trying to get it. Right. So when we first started talking about the research evidence, you said that you thought there was a bit too much of a focus on achievement and it sh the question and the, the metaphor with the truck, the, the ultimate question was you thought we should be saying, does it get the medicine to the hospital, not does it cure the cancer? But then I, I think the, the message that came through quite strongly just then was you were saying that the ultimate test of whether coaching works is if it has an impact on the achievement and the well-being of the students and their engagement, which I would see as within that metaphor actually does it, you know, help with the cancer. Have I, have I missed something? I don't know about that. That's a really great question. I like the way you put it. I mean, I think it's not that simple. I mean, not that you said it's in a simple way, but whether or not achievement's going to go up comes down to the strategies that are being used. Because I would say the ultimate question is, is the coaching leading to a change in students' lives? You know, is it, 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 the, people ask me, how do we know if coaching is effective? I would say it's effective if it's in, in changing what's happening with kids. So maybe I need to change my metaphor, which I've been really fond of the last couple of weeks. But maybe that's not the right metaphor because um, it is complex, though, because do the strategies we have work? Is it really, this is why we create an instructional playbook so we can continually refine 
our understanding of the teaching practices. And we can, you know, continually, we can document the learning we've had with our, with our particular teaching practices. So, so we're always getting more and more effective at the way we describe, and we're always gathering together more and more effective teaching practices. So I don't know, I'm gonna have to think about that. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, I agree with both parts of your answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a good question that I don't have a really good answer to. Yeah, I gotta think about that. Yeah. That's a really good one. Maybe check back with me in a couple of weeks and see what I think. Yeah, well, we've got the we've got the follow-up in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, because I personally, I, I agree with both parts. Like ultimately, everything we do within schools is about increasing student achievement, well-being um, and engagement, right, and empowerment. So that's how like any input, whether it be instructional coaching or anything, should be ultimately measured. But there is also this kind of sub thing that we want to measure, which is our coaches helping teachers get better at instruction and, you know, do better cold calling or whatever it may be. So it's kind of like we have a hypothesis that the instructional strategies when implemented will lead to achievement. And so I guess we can see maybe the answer here is to do with leading and lagging indicators. If we're talking about achievement, the leading indicator is the instructional strategy implementation and the lagging indicator is a student achievement, which comes a little bit later on. And engagement is also a bit of a leading indicator to to achievement as well, because we'd expect those two things to be causally related. So maybe that's a way for them to to be kind of related and, and not so much intention. Yeah, I don't think my metaphor works, though. I think you've convinced me with your questions that actually the coaching should lead to a change in student achievement or a change in, in student. We would group empowerment and engagement under well-being. So maybe we forget about that whole part about the, about the truck going to the cancer supplies. You should be constantly analyzing your practices to say, are these the right ones that will have the biggest impact? That's why we create a playbook. So. Yeah. At any rate, there are some recent studies that show an impact on achievement. And we have a big project we're doing right now with the American Institute for Research, looking at writing. We just started it in January, but looking at writing and to see what impact it has on achievement. So, good. All right. Well, this has been worth the price of admission already. So. Okay. Glad to hear you. Wonderful. And I'll put, we'll put the link to that Great. Uh, research page in the show notes. So you just mentioned that the impact cycle has gone through 11 iterations to get to its current form. And you mentioned it earlier, those three steps of, of you know, identify, learn and improve. Did you want to tell us a little bit more about the impact cycle before we kind of jump into the first step of it? Well, in instructional coaching, the book Instructional Coaching, we didn't have the impact cycle. And it's through that form of research that we refined and tried to simplify. We want simple, not simplistic. And so the basic idea is in the identify stage, we identify a clear picture of current reality, a goal, and a strategy. In the learning stage, teacher gets ready to implement the strategy. And then in the improvement stage, we make adaptations until the goal is hit. So that's, in a nutshell, that's the whole process. Okay. One thing that I was wondering, because I've, I've been started to do a bit of coaching using your model this year. Mm-hmm. And one thing, like so many great frameworks, but one thing I was wondering a little bit about was about like first contact with a teacher. So when a coach and a coachee, it might be an email, might be a first meeting, it's probably a first an email and then a meeting. Do you have any advice for coaches for making that first contact and having that first meeting and kind of explaining what this thing's all about? I do. I think that's not something in the impact cycle, but it's in the new book I'm writing right now. That's great. The one I just showed you the last couple of pages already. And during that conversation, I think you want to address the teachers, any questions they've got. And I think it's good to have a checklist for the cycle, how the cycle works, or some kind of visual something you could look at. 
and you kind of talk it through with the teacher and make sure they want to do the different parts and clarify a few things. Clarify that whatever the policy is around confidentiality, what will get shared and what won't get shared. Usually the coach doesn't do anything evaluative. You know, they don't say you're doing a good job or bad, or they don't communicate any evaluative data back to the principal. And just sort of going line by line through the checklist of the impact cycle gives the teacher a chance to ask any questions they've got and to get things set up and to make some plans. What I'm going to meet again, what are, what are the things we're going to accomplish? And I think at the end of that first meeting, the teacher should understand the process and you should have a plan in place for when you're going to meet to do the various things that have to happen. Mm. What, are, what are some of the worries that teachers would have or things that could go wrong in the first kind of meeting like this? Well, I think a lot could go wrong depending on what the coach does, you know. When you work with someone on something they want to improve, the desire to tell them how to fix their problem is really strong. <laughs> you really, your whole body, you can feel it physically. You're like, oh, I just can't wait to, I had, I had that problem last year. Let me tell them how to fix it. But when you, if you, if you do that, if you jump into solving their problem, you're going you're gonna to rob them of the joy of solving the problem themselves. And probably it'll mean they don't own the solution. So you have to restrain yourself from solving any problem. And I always, uh, Christian Van Neuerberg has a great mantra. He says, it's not about me. And I think when you're in that coaching conversation, you want to say, it's not about me, it's about the other teacher. A lot of people are worried about, you know, if you're going to use video to get a clear picture of current reality, who's going to see the video? Where's it going to go? And so I think you need to clarify what it looks like. And there's a lot of things around how to use video. If you want, I can just record the students. I can use your phone if you like. If the teacher trusts you, and they work in a psychologically safe environment, things should go pretty smoothly if you truly honor the professionalism of the coach or the teacher and you and you do a lot more listening than talking and uh, you validate them, affirm them. I think you need to approach the person with humility, with a strength-based approach, and with a genuine desire to do what's best for them. And when people can feel that, then, they, then they're going to be trusting. But if that's not happening, it's going to be a little, a little tough. And the other thing is it can be tougher depending on the psychological safety of the school. If the school is kind of a place where people don't feel that safe, it's going to make your job more difficult. It doesn't say you can't do it. It's just more difficult. You have to sort of say, you and I, we're going to be okay. But some people sometimes, depending on what's happened in the past, are hesitant to jump out and trust someone right away. They're going to have to kind of, they have to know that you have their best interest at heart. Okay. That's great. So first step is gain a clear picture of reality. Why is this the starting point? Yeah, a lot of the coaching models don't start there. But I'd say there's two important things. One of them is pretty basic. If, if you don't have a clear picture of current reality, how do you know you're focused on the most important thing? And uh, it's been our finding, having interviewed a lot of coaches and teachers, that what the teacher thinks the goal will be changes usually after they watch the video. Uh, one person, Sharon Thomas, I interviewed, she said, it's like the MacGuffin effect in uh, Hitchcock. You think the movie's going to be about this, but it ends up being about this. So you want to get a clear picture of current reality so you know your goal is the right goal. But the second thing is motivation. This is what's in Miller and Rolnick's work, motivational interviewing. Motivation usually involves a discrepancy between where you are and where you want to be. Like you don't like your physical condition and you want to get to where you can run a half marathon. You have this discrepancy. But if you don't have a clear picture of current reality, there's less motivation to change. And so part of getting a clear motivation, a clear picture of reality is to is so people can really see where they are, and then they're going to come back and say, "Look, I don't like that. We got to change this." And then, and then, it's, then we're off to the races. Once they really want to change, and if we, if we can help them pick the thing they want to focus on, then we're just helping them do what they want to do. That's the key thing. Mm, that's really good reasons why 
why to get that clean, clear picture, that motivational one, and also make, making sure you're working on the most important thing. Now, you suggest video for gaining a clear picture of reality. Is that absolutely necessary? Where, where does it sit on the, on the kind of spectrum of importance? Well, it's up to the teacher. It's her class. It's her data. It's whatever she wants to do. So video is easy and it's powerful. We've got evidence stretching back to the studies at Stanford in the 60s that showed the power of micro. But it's always been difficult until Steve Jobs held up that iPhone at the Apple conference. It was never that. Even now, you just stick the phone on the shelf and push the red button and away you go. So now it's really easy. But if a teacher, for any number of reasons, doesn't want to do video, or it could be also you need to make sure you have permission to record the students or maybe students in class who, for some reason, can't be on video. A second thing is audio. Like I said, you can have video that just records the students and leaves the teacher out of it. Or you can interview students. Sometimes what you think is going on isn't really what's going on. And the interviews can give you a deeper insight into what's happening inside kids. You can look at student work or just talk about the student performance generally to set a goal. But if you only look at student work without looking at a clear picture of current, you're going to miss important things, possibly. Like what if there's a not a high level of engagement and the teacher isn't aware of it? Or what if there's a lot of wasted time? In it? And, it, and when you watch video, you're often quite surprised to see what you see. So to me, something like student achievement, looking at student performance and looking at video of the class or listening to audio of the class would, would be helpful. And the last thing is the coach could go in and gather observation data. We have a form in the impact cycle you can use, but that's my least favorite way because if the teacher doesn't have a clear picture of reality, they're not going to not going to get a lot out of the form. They're not going to see it, you know. So so it's kind of a hierarchy: video, interviews, student work, observation, or perhaps some combination. Mm, got it. So the next two steps are kind of well, after gaining a clear picture of reality, you set goals and then I determine strategy. But before we go into that, we have an exciting kind of thing ahead of us, Jim, which is that we're going to – I've sent you a video of my class. Right. right. You, you've watched it. I've watched it. And we're actually going to do a, a live coaching session, which I'm very excited about. So just for listeners, for context, I sent Jim a copy of my year 12 class this is it was pretty much the fifth lesson with this class i've just moved schools new school new class trying to establish norms and things like that at the start of the year i initially thought i was going to send you a video of a year nine class because year nines are notoriously kind of harder to manage than year 12s but i kind of went in i went in in a very structured way with my year nines and i actually had them working in a way that i was happy with within the first you know two lessons whereas with the year 12s i went in a lot easier because i expected them to kind of be much more self-regulating and things like that and the fact that i gave them a bit too much (laughs) rope i think it kind of things got a little bit out of hand and i had to try to bring things back so this fifth lesson was probably one or two lessons after I'd really tried to tighten things up and be a lot more consistent about my expectations. And that's why I shared that video. So I see that I've watched it. What you sent me was a one pager that talked about some things for me to think about in terms of when I was watching be in a comfy place, be able to write some things down and then some kind of checklists to think about, you know, the level of student engagement and conversation and things like that, which I have had a look at. So over to you, Jim. I'm, we're swapping seats now. You're the one driving the interview and I'll be the person uh, answering the questions. So Ollie, I've got kind of a, might seem like kind of a funny question, but you've watched the video, I've watched the video. Let me just say too, I'm really grateful for your courage to make the video and then share it with me. I've shown it all across the United States now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I haven't shown it to anybody. But um, so I have this question I start off with, which is on a scale of one to 10, 
with 10 being, this is the best class I ever taught. This is exactly what I was hoping for. And one being, this was the worst class ever. And I don't know why I'm even teaching. Mm. Where would you put it on that scale? I'd probably put it about, I'd probably put it an eight and a half, I reckon. Okay. Tell me why you'd put it there. Well, when I started watching it, it was, I was originally thinking it was going to be a nine because the lesson really started very well. Students were super focused and things like that. And then towards the end, I would say there was a bit more rowdiness. There were a few things I noticed I could have done better. But overall, I thought it was like a super solid lesson and one of the best I've had with that class this year. So definitely above like an 80%, I would say. But then I could still see quite a few things I, I needed to work on. So wouldn't be happy to give it a, a nine or so. Well, tell me some of the things you liked. What were some of the things you were pleased with? Some of the things I was pleased about, I thought I did some good positive narration. I thought I was really clear with my expectations. You know, even I did the Douglas off threshold thing outside the door. I said, you know, we're going to walk in quietly. You're going to get these things, et cetera, et cetera. I think I was relatively consistent with some you know, hands up expectations and things like that. I think I was very clear with my instructions, good economy of language. I didn't kind of talk for ages. I was like, this is the thing you need to know. It was really clear. I do, you do. The students, there was a very high level of engagement. They were following on. They were following my instructions and doing the tasks. So yeah, they they were the main things that I liked. They were into it too. Mm. I mean, when they were answering the questions and they were coming up with, they were like applauding each other. It was kind of fun to watch when when they were into it. So what would have to change to make it a little bit better? And maybe we don't just talk about this class, but if you sort of, in your mind, imagined this course, what would you like to see more of with that class? Yeah. So, I mean, specifically in, it kind of came in this lesson, but the things that kind of got a bit out of hand, one of the things is often when a student asks a question, other students will volunteer answers. So it's like everything will be well, the students will be listening and then one student will make a contribution, whether that's with a hand up or without, and then that will like lead to this eruption of contributions that kind of gets a bit rowdy and I kind of lose them a little bit and I have to bring them back. So that's kind of a pattern that I recognise in this class. It'll often be a student will ask a question, which will be a good question, and then another student will just answer it, whereas, you know, just just call out an answer, which is actually often the right answer, but they'll call out an answer and then another student again will say add another thing and all of a sudden you've got like five students shouting something out and then they all start talking amongst themselves. So that were the few times that I kind of lost them a bit, I would say it seemed to be that kind of popcorny kind of pattern. Another thing I noticed was that my coverage of the room, if I were to draw like the path that I followed, there were some students that I was systematically not seeing uh, as many times as the others. So I think being a bit more systematic and planning out my like route around the classroom. I think I, you know, I broke through the the wall into the actual classroom space and walked around a lot very well. And I was like doing the Douglas of tracking, not watching thing. But yeah, I did miss a few students more times than others because of the route that I took. So I think redesign, that would be ideal. And then one of the biggest things that is pretty systematic, I would say in a lot of my classes and for a lot of teachers as well is the whole, they're packing up and I'm giving them instructions, but they're not listening because they're packing up kind of a thing. So tightening that up and working out some ways, some strategies to bring them back to get, well, make sure they're focused. Even if the bell's gone, they're focused and they're listening to me until I say you can pack up now um, would, would be something I'd be happy to improve. So I heard three things. One of them is the way kids respond after questions are asked. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of like, I think you said a popcorn effect, then you have to kind of struggle to bring them back. Mm-hmm. Your movement around the classroom and then giving instructions during the last five minutes of class. 
Anything else that you saw that you think oh, I would that would move me closer to a ten? I mean, I could identify a few specific students. Yeah, so there were a couple of students I could identify who were pretty systematically like distracted, like they're a bit a bit all over the place, and just like a few side conversations. Oh, there were about three or four times students use their mobile phones that I actually didn't notice when I was teaching. So they're, they're sneaky. I thought I was pretty good, but they're sneakier than I realized. So there's that, and then yeah, that. A few students. I was actually thinking it would be really valuable to show some of these students the video of themselves in the class and say, just watch yourself for this 50-minute period and think about how many minutes you spend listening and focused and how many minutes you spend not because this is year 12, so they, they all want to do well. And then compare yourself to this other student, for example, who's just like switched on the whole time. So that was that – was, there were a couple of other things. But good question because, yeah, it definitely brought, brought up a couple of other things. So four things, and the fourth one would be some of the students are sneaking their phones out and a little distracted during the lesson. As you look at those four things, let me see if I can remember them. I didn't write them down. Way kids respond after questions, moving around the classroom, the last five minutes, or the engagement of some students. Are any of those where you think that might be kind of a goal I'd like to focus on? Yeah, well, the biggest issue is the how they respond, like, is the popcorn thing, as I phrase it, like one student will ask a question and then other students pop in. That is, it wasn't as bad in this lesson because it was a particular, I think there was a bit of a Hawthorne effect, the fact they knew they were being recorded, especially for the first half of the lesson, I think made them- Maybe just show the camera every time. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) I think they'll probably get habitualized to it then. But that thing where it's like one student asks a question, at the year 12 level, I don't actually mind that much if a student calls out a question without putting their hand up because- like if they need to ask a question, that's okay. But it does become an issue when that then turns into multiple students calling out and a conversation where I don't want it to. So that is an issue. I mean, I want to work on all the other things, but if I were to say the, the most important thing that's standing out to me, I would say that one. Yeah, if you think about it, let's say you waste three minutes and you multiply it by all the students in the class. That's a lot of time, three times the total number of students in class. That's a lot of time of non-instructional time that you could, you could reduce. So what would it look like if it was going the way you would want it to be? You know, you ask a question, the response, how would you like it to look? Yeah, just basically the high level focus with the kind of instruction. And then if a student, a student could call it, I would be okay with that. They call something out and then I respond to it. Or if another student wants to respond, they can raise their hand or like do some symbol or something that says like, oh, I want a response, I don't know, do a big R or something. I want to respond to that because I know the answer. That could be me saying, does anyone want to respond to that? I could actually invite that and then that could like get a nice routine going or they could just learn, though I would be less confident about (laughs) their ability because some of of the students in the class are quite impulsive and even like when I've reinforced the hands up thing, they kind of hand up and call out at the same time or just calling out. So just some structured and kind of calm and collected way that we all as a class respond to a student's question. Mm-hmm. So you want calm. It's okay if the kids shout out a response to a question or say a response to a question, but after that first response, you want order and calm there and the way the next part moves on. Is that fair to say? Yep. So... What difference will that make for the students? They'll learn more because I have found that when – you you wouldn't have seen it that much in this class, but 
in other classes when it starts to get worse and if that happens like three times in a row and they kind of bounce off each other because they're, they're all good friends and they like to chat and contribute and, you know, help each other but also pay each other out a little bit and stuff like that. If that happens a couple of times in a row, the focus and the listening actually reduces and then I find myself repeating myself and I find them when I do the checks for understanding, they're not getting it. So they will learn more and they will understand more. All right. And so do you want that to be your goal for coaching? Yeah. I mean, the goal, the goal would be you want to see an increase in student achievement as a result of changing what happens after a question, the way in which kids respond to questions. And you want a calm and orderly routine in the way in which not, I mean, correct me if I've got it wrong, but it's, it's not that you want to have the kids all clamped down. You, you like the, the kind of freedom and autonomy they bring, but the trouble with behavior is it gets worse. So if you let this, you know, this could become more and more rowdy behavior and you want to sort of stop it before it happens. So, so I'm saying, thinking the goal would be a calm but pleasant routine for responding to questions. And you're going to measure that by how the kids respond to, the students respond to checks for understanding. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah, almost calm and pleasant routine, yes. And I'll measure it by the way in which students respond to their classmates' questions during instructional time is how I'd put it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, good. How do you feel about that goal? Does that sound like it's worth the effort? Yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, the entry is getting better. Like if I think about the whole class and the things that I care about, the entry is getting better. They're starting to come in, start the starter without too much, you know, pushing and shoving and getting excited about whatever happened on the weekend or whatever. After the starter, they get, they're habitualizing getting stuck straight into book work, which is the transition, you know, without talking or anything. So that's really good. So the level of focus is high throughout and lots of learning happening there. This is the time where I'm systematically losing losing them, I would say. So if I can nip this in the bud and, and work out a good way to deal with it, then I think we'll have a really focused for the majority of the lesson. But also, like you said, that calm and relaxed atmosphere where they feel like they can contribute and, and, and call out if they have a question, but in an appropriate way. Okay, good. So it sounds you have a goal. How do you think you would accomplish that goal? What could you do? What are you thinking? I think I would actually like to make it explicit to students. In fact, I might even play part of this recording and say, you know, there's this great guy, Jim Knight. He coaches people all over the world. He's been approached by AFL football clubs to, to see if they'll uh, he'll work with them and coach them. Yeah, they didn't give him a job though. He was they didn't give him a job because he supported the wrong team. But he was asked. That's my story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I managed to somehow invite him on my podcast and get him to coach me, which is absolutely amazing. And during that discussion, uh, we identified that this is something that's going to you know, increase your learning and, and help us to be have a better time. So I, I would actually like to make the goal explicit. Is that something that you would often do, make the goal explicit to students? Well, I think it's up to each teacher. I, I would. I would spell out this is what it should look like. This is the way it's supposed to go. And some people might co-constructed with the students and others might say this is the way I want it to be or others might have a really clear picture in their mind of what they want and and at the same time co-construct with students so but I, I think what I'm hearing you say correct me if I've got it wrong is you want you want students to know this is what is okay and this is what's not okay and the reasons aren't just that I'm being a jerk the reasons are it's going to lead to more learning and more success is that kind of the idea? hundred percent. Yeah, you've hit it on the head. I really want them to know where it's coming from. I want all of them to achieve the marks they want to get at the end in the end of year high stakes exams. And one thing that I see systematically compromising this at present is us losing control this time. And I want to maintain this kind of 
calm atmosphere. And I think this is the way we can address it. So how would you address it? What are you, you going to do to address it? Well, I think the thing you said then about co-constructing was a good question or a good thing to bring up, which is after I actually explained to them what I've seen is the issue, perhaps there's a space. I mean, I can probably propose something. What my proposal would be is just like, if someone asks a question, like we can start with calling out it's okay. And if someone asks a question, just other people don't call out. And if they want to respond, they raise their hand and I give them an opportunity to respond so that we could start with that. If it turns out that it's too hard for like, if one of them calls out, other people just naturally call out, then we might have to go back and do the full on hands up for any question kind of a thing. Right. But yeah, I think making it explicit to students and then just trying to be on top of that and reminding them whenever it happens, remember that discussion we had, this is, we're heading down the wrong track here. I think that would go some way. So I've got, what I'm hearing is, uh, you want to discuss it with the students and co-construct it, but what you want uh, also is you want that uh, the, the first question could be called out, but after the first question, we're either going to, we're going to have some kind of signal. Maybe you co-construct that with the students too. You raise your hand or how do you want to do it? And then you're going to measure its effectiveness by how kids respond to questions. Do you mind if I just share something I'm wondering? I'm not suggesting you would do this. It's just kind of in my head based on what you said. What do you think about the idea of, you know, video recording a class and sharing just little clips? This might be too much work. I don't know. But clips of how kids respond to questions and you show them this is how we're doing and some way of monitoring progress towards the goal. Or would that just be too much trouble and not worth it? I don't know. No, I think that's good. And I think even from that first recording, I think it happened at least once. Right. Towards the end, you know, 30, 33, 34, 35 minutes or something like that. So I could probably put it out there and then probably be a really, really good way of um, highlighting that to them. I'm just wondering how to measure it, you know, how you, you want to be able to see if it's working or not. I guess you can just, you could, you know, just sort of holistically ask yourself, is it working or not? But more precise you can be in your measurement is better, I think. Yeah, I think I can kill two birds with one stone here. And because I was thinking like, the way to measure it is how many times it happens, right, in a lesson. The more times it happens, the worse. But we don't want to just raise my awareness to it happening. We actually want to also raise the student's awareness to it happening. So I could just, right. at the start of every class, put a box on the board that says tally of like appropriate response to a student question like and one that's distracting or whatever we end up calling it in the classroom. And then I could actually have them also help me keep count. So if one student asks a question and another student calls out an answer, I could have all the other boys go, oh, no, we did the wrong thing. Put a thing on the tally, sir. And then I put it on the tally. Right. How do you feel about that? Yeah, good. I think it would be effective. Okay. So the goal is, what I'm hearing, correct me if I've got it wrong, the goal is we want to look at how students respond to questions. We're going to get there by co-constructing some explicit guidelines about what it's going to look like. And you're going to just keep track of how many times the disruptive thing happens and involve the students in kind of self-monitoring what's going on so they can move forward, so they can do better ultimately in the test. Is that the, is that the picture? Yeah, that sounds good. How do you feel about that? Good. Okay, <laughs> good. Well, that's the goal. Now, if we were working together as coach, I could come in your classroom and I could keep track of the data. So mm -hmm. I could I could come in and tally how many times the kids respond. I could record the video. I could even go through the video for you and say, here's what happened or give you little segments. There's a lot I can do to provide support. And it might not work. I might have to do something different. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of how the process works. So see, that was pretty much facilitator coaching. There's only one or two points where I even suggested anything. So I would say that was in the facilitated realm. 
more than the dialogical. But if you said to me, I have no idea what to do, I want this goal, but I don't know how to get there, then I would have probably said, well, getting re really clear on your expectations, reinforce it when you see it, correct it when you don't see it. We can get the expectations clearly, you know, we can co-construct them right now, maybe later, and then you can teach them to the kids. And it's probably what I would have said, but I think your method makes more sense. You've had a better solution than I would have given you. Okay, that's great. Was I mean, something I would like to ask anyway, and this is something that some of the people I've been coaching. So a lot of the people I've been coaching are like super on top of it, really got similar frameworks to, to myself in terms of how to deal with classroom things, had similar, noticed similar things in the videos. But then they also asked me, um, you know, like, what did you see? Did you see anything that I didn't? So I'd lo love to ask that question to you as well, Jim. Is there something you saw that I didn't mention that could be a, something to work on? I'm happy with the goal we've got, but I'm just keen anyway to hear. No, I like your goal. Your goal is better than anything I would have come up with. I was trying to figure out what the heck it would be. I think, you know, there's always room to tighten things up, whatever it might be. You know, I think if I do a workshop, I could do it tighter. I can look at it later on. If I'm doing a model lesson, I'll see ways in which it could be tighter. Um, but I like your goal. I mean, what did I see that we didn't talk about? I, I, what I was impressed with was your rapport with the students. They really feel, I thought they were respectful towards you. You know, they listened to you and your demeanor with them was if I sat in that class and you were talking to me, I'd feel like you, you had a lot of respect for me. I would feel respected. So that's kind of what struck me. I thought there was real rapport in the classroom. They were uh, seniors, you know, their last year is a challenge. They were ready to move on. And, and yet there was a high degree of respect there. So that's what, that's what I noticed. But my opinion is not nearly as important as yours. So. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate you saying that. Anything to work on, though? Anything? If if I said if I said I don't I don't know. If I was like, oh, that was a ten out of ten lesson. That was great. Or if I said it was a eight out of ten, but I don't know what I want to work on. I don't know how to get better. What would you have said? I like what you chose. I think. I mean, I'm always curious. This is not a suggestion. It's just a question. But I'm always curious to know: Are you really clear on how well the students are performing at all times? Like using the whiteboards as response cards or as, as a way to show their answers and to make suggestions when they were doing the, that. I thought that was really great, but it would, I would want to know, and I don't know enough about the whole class to know how much you knew about what they could do. I mean, they're doing a little, was it a, 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 like a bell work when they started or a test at the start? Oh, at the start was, the start was just like a starter. Yeah, I think if they're all learning, great. I would probably want to use that starter for a check on what they learned the day before to see how many kids are learning. I guess that would be a way I would look at it. I would, I would like to, I think you probably already have this, but I would want to know how well every student's performing. You know, if you think of Hattie, here's clearly what we're trying to learn. And here's how we're going to measure pro progress towards that goal. And then if we aren't hitting the goal, we're going to come up with adaptations, feedback to get to the goal. But I think knowing how well every student is performing is really important. Mm, definitely. All right, so let's just go back through for, for listeners some of those questions and, and kind of dissect them a little bit. So the first question you asked was on a scale of 10, how would you tell us about that question? Well, it's a solution-focused question. It comes from solution-focused coaching, and the idea is it puts the ball in your court, and it gives you a chance to talk aspirationally about what you'd like to see. I mean, it, it gives you control. And once I've asked that question, the next questions that follow will give you a chance to reflect on what went well and what you'd like 
see even more of. And so it, it sort of is a great one to get things started from my perspective. It's a little cliche a bit, you know, so you have to kind of, I usually like, this sounds a little goofy, but this is the way I'm going to start. But I like, I like it because I really like it because every time I ask the question, then we're started, we're into the whole process. And it's not me saying, oh, here's what I saw in the video. It's all you telling me what you, you experienced and what you saw. Mm. Yeah, it's great. It's it's kind of like I had Guy Claxton on a couple of episodes ago and one of the things he suggested with students is you saying to them, you know, let's just let's just call what you've just did like this thing. Let's call it a four. What would it take to get it to a five? This kind of ipsative assessment approach. I don't know what it is about it, but I think what it does, before you talked about like seeing a gap between where you are and where you want to be, it's just a really clear and concrete way to set that out. So it's such a simple but such a powerful question. Something else, something else I noticed you doing a lot was you were reflecting back what I was saying a lot. Tell us about that. Well, I see coaching as me thinking with you and reflecting back. I just wanted to make sure I understood it, that I had the essence of what you were saying. And I wasn't sure. So I just wanted to make sure I had it. And then sometimes hearing it will prompt a person to go a little deeper, you know, invite them to go a little deeper. So... But most of my reflecting was just so I could be sure I understood what you were saying. And and then I guess paraphrasing back also moves the conversation forward. You go, that's it. Now the next part is this. I think it kind of functions like that. But mo- mostly I'm trying to think with you and I can't think with you unless I understand what you're saying. And so paraphrasing for me mostly is just making sure I understand your thoughts. Mm, that's great. And sometimes it's validating too because you can say, you know, I think I, I think this is your goal and the person will say, Oh, that is my goal. I hadn't really thought about it, but now that you say it that way, and I really just said what they said, but they're, they're in the process of reflecting and they, they haven't really got it all played out. So sometimes that's what happens with a paraphrase as well. Somebody will say, oh, that's, you said it better than I do. You know, it's just because I'm not the one constructing and I was just listening. Mm. And something else you did was you used a lot of kind of tentative language. You, you said a phrase you used a lot was like, uh, tell me if I'm wrong or is it fair to say? Tell us about that. Well, I think the only proper response to what happens in the classroom is a tentative response. Mm-hmm. It's just too complex. Trying to get one human being to do something is astonishing. A whole classroom full of students, that's complex. Mm. So to me, to be tentative in your response is the only appropriate response because who, who knows? There are no guarantees. What won't work for you might not work for the teacher on the other side of the building. And so I also don't want to be telling the person what I think they should do. I want them to make every decision. And so I, if I'm going to share something, it's really in a, in, from a place of mutual exploration. Well, here's something. What do you think about it? And I, I see you as the one who knows. And you're, they're your students. You're going to have to make the choices. So I'm hesitant to say this is the way it should be. I think plus if I come through too forcefully with this is the way it should be, it usually produces an opposite reaction where I don't really want to do it that way. So I want you to choose whatever works best for you. So I offer everything kind of as a choice. Mm, That's great. Two of the things that I've found most powerful about this framework and especially this first part, because I've been doing various types of coaching for a while, but I would say I really only probably started to become even mildly effective after I read your book, Jim. So so thanks thanks for laying it out the way you have. One thing is the, the goal focus. So the fact that once we... And the, the idea of quantifying that. So you helped me establish a goal and you helped me to think, you, another question you specifically asked is, how would you measure that? And 
in your book you write about the value of having that because what it means is, for example, if I came up with an idea that maybe you thought as a coach, oh, that probably isn't going to work. If you don't think it's going to work, we've still worked out a way to actually track whether it's working or not. So you can give me that license as a teacher to take ownership and say, oh, I really want to try this. If it works, great. We'll see it works. And if it doesn't work, then you can step in and and offer some more suggestions. How did you kind of come up with that approach or how did you end up at that point of, of, have, of realizing the value of having that, that measurable goal? Well, we didn't do it like that. It grew out of our research and we realized as I was working with the coaches in Beaverton, Oregon, that we need to get better at it. And, and without a really clear goal, you kind of flounder around a little bit. So the, the clearer you can get on the goal, then the more focused the coaching can be. And honestly, I don't know that we're clear enough with your goal, but if we were working together, I was your coach, I would probably come back next time and say, let's keep thinking of, it's just working in terms of the way we're measuring. We might change the way we measure progress towards the goal, or we might change things. The goal is really important too, because it provides an excellent objective standard for excellence. So you can't probably hit the goal if you're implementing something in a ineffective way. So the goal keeps you going until you do the thing and do it effectively. And and also not everything is going to work, but they really just grew out of our research and then our ongoing, like today, today I was coaching a coach and the conversation was really about going deep on the goal, getting precise about the goal. Mm, okay. The goal is like a finish line. If you don't have the finish line, where are you headed? You, you need to know what you're trying to get to. Mm, and that measurement provides a lot of clarity around that. So that's great. So yeah, I mean, I, I could go back and look at the video and see how many times that issue happened and then aim for it to be less. So maybe if I were to clarify that goal a bit more, I would only really want it to happen. I think it's good, but I would be watching it. Like your, your, your goal is you want the way the kid's responding to be different and you're going to get there by involving the students and articulating exactly what it should look like. You're also maybe going to use video or something to keep track. Well, you get your tally chart as a way to do it. I mean, that's pretty tight. But I'd still be curious to see if we want to go deeper and make it more even sharper. But I think it's a great start. I mean, you don't have to have the, the better the goal is, the sooner. But, you know, you, you get as far as you can with the conversation. And then the next time we get together, we might have to make some adjustments. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Wonderful. And and I'll just say, even just yesterday, I was having a coaching conversation with someone and I found us getting kind of focused on the strategy. It was like, we were talking about like, oh, let's let's do cold calling. It's going to be cold calling. You, your goal is going to be cold calling. And I found myself stepping back and go, actually, no, that's not what Jim wants us to do. We need – that's not what's going to be most effective. You know, let's focus on the actual outcome we want, how we're going to measure that. And then cold calling might be one way for us to get there uh, or there might be a right. better way. Um, so, yeah, just it provides such clarity. So, But let me just – I'm going to interrupt for a sec. So, sorry. I would say – the question I like to ask is, okay, if we do cold calling, what's going to be different for the students? Mm-hmm. That question is a really important question. And then and then the teacher will say, well, right now I only have four, the same four students answering. I want all my students to an- respond to questions. And I say, okay, all right, well, then how often do you, you know, and then we would get precise on what that would look like. And because the thing is, if we pick cold calling, I could do it a few times and then say, there, I did it. I hit the goal, whether there's a change with students or not. But if I set the goal of I want 90% of my students to be involved during classroom discussion, then maybe cold calling will work or it won't work. 
but if I do it and it works, I'll keep doing it because I'm not focused on the strategy. I'm focused on the change in students. Mm. That's why that question is so important. If you hit, if you use that strategy, what will be different for the kids? Awesome. And the other thing that I've found, so that goal is one thing that goal focus and clarity around that is one thing I'd say really has been a big takeaway for me out of your, your process. And the other thing is the emotional connection that the coachee has to have with the goal. And you were really emphasizing that a lot of the time in those, in your questions there were like, how would you feel about that? How would you feel if you could achieve that? Because a trap that I would say I've fallen into in the past is like someone, you're planning goals around shoulds. People are like, oh, I should improve this part of my practice. Oh, I should do this or that. But they're not actually motivated to do it. And then that ends right. up with you being like an enforcer trying to get them, enforce them because it, it's just like this battle. So to tell us more about the importance of the emotional connection. Well, let me ask you, how committed were you to the goal? Like on a scale of one to 10 with 10 being I'm all in and one being I'm just going along with what you said. I actually hate the goal. Where where are you on that scale? Uh, pretty high. I mean, I don't know, probably like an eight. Like I think okay. it's like if I can do this, it's like – it's the difference between when I leave the lesson and go like, oh, that was really good. And if when I leave the lesson going, they got a bit distracted during there and I had to repeat myself mm. a few times and I could tell some of them missed the point. And like, that's really important. But it's not like I'm right. Like, it's really important. It is really important. But I'm, it's not like the most exciting thing that's ever happened in my life that I want to get better at. So, so it's not a 10. Right. So the thing is, if you didn't care about the goal, then you're, I think you just said it really well. If you didn't care about the goal, then the coaching is probably not going to go anywhere. But if, if, if it really matters to you and if you can get really clear on what you want to see, and it's going to be hard to do without a coach, though, because it would be helpful if I can, you know, if we can talk about how it's going, I can I can help you gather the data and watch the students. We can just sort of brainstorm. It's going to be easier to have that second set of eyes mm. and the, the person there working with you. But regardless, I don't want to do a goal. I, I don't want the teacher to be going through the motions of doing something you don't care about if it's worth the effort then if it's worth the effort, then my job is really easy. I just do all I can to help you hit your goal. If you don't care about the goal, my job is really difficult and it might not even work. You know, if I'm trying to get you excited about a goal you don't care about, that's that's a lot of hard work. If you're really excited, then I'm just helping you hit your goal. Mm, that's great. Yeah, it's been a really helpful filter for me in conversation with the people to help them identify what's good just by watching them and seeing what they light up talking about and what they kind of start looking down and dejected when they start talking about it. Wonderful. All right, Jim. Well, so this is the first. So we're actually doing this interview in two parts. So this is that first part for listeners' benefit. Um, I'm actually going to go away now and, and try to work on this. Uh, and then we're going to come back and have that follow-up conversation and, and, and kind of wrap things up. What is there anything that I should be thinking about or doing in terms of next steps apart from like trying to do this, obviously, that you would say that you'd wind up the conversation, Jim, to, to set me off in the right direction? Well, I'm going to send you an email that will summarize our conversation and uh, let me know if I've missed anything. And um, I guess when will you start implementing? Next lesson. So I've got the class on Monday. So I will, I'll need the recording. I'll have to cut it out myself. I'll, I'll cut out a portion of the interview myself. I'll share it with the class on Monday. Well, great. So it starts Monday. Keep me posted on how it goes. I'll send you a few notes on what we said. It's going to be very brief. I think you're very, very clear and concise, so it shouldn't be a problem. And then um, don't hesitate to contact me. Keep me posted on progress. Wonderful. Will do. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for your time today. It's been, um, it's been wonderful. I feel very grateful for you giving me your time and good luck working on that book. It's almost done. And I'm grateful for your questions. They really 
they were really helpful. They really helped me. I mean, I changed my way of thinking during the conversation, so I'm grateful for it. So thanks. Dear listeners, if you've been enjoying this episode on coaching and you're keen to find out more, this month there are two options for you to dive deeper. The first option, as usual, is for you to become a patron of the ERRR podcast. Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to the interactive script for each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast that you're looking for and listen back from that exact point. In this month's summary, I'll include my key takeaways from this discussion, along with a record of the exact questions that Jim asks me within this coaching session, and a bit of an analysis of why he's asked each question. The summary also includes a summary of many of the other topics touched upon in the interview, such as the impact cycle more generally, three types of coaching, an email template to make your first contact with coachees, and much more. The second opportunity to get more into coaching is a bit more hands-on. I mentioned within this podcast that I've just changed schools, and I've moved to a new school with a super strong coaching program, and we'll actually be running a coaching in action day later on this year that will include classroom visits, coaching practice, and a bunch of resources to help get you or your school started on the coaching journey. If you're keen to hear more about that Coaching in Action Day, just shoot me an email at ollie at ollielevel.com or tweet me and I'll send you through more details. So, to recap, for a memorable summary of this episode of the E2L podcast, an interactive transcript of the episode, or if you'd like to support the production of the show, then go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the average donation of $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Or if you're interested in that coaching in action day and you're based in or could make it to Melbourne, Australia, then shoot me an email at ollie at ollielevel.com or tweet me for more info. Now, Back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Jim Knight. Jim Knight, welcome back to the Education Research Reading Room. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming on again, Jim. It's very exciting to have you on again. So last time we finished off and we identified, we got a clear picture of reality in my classroom. We set a goal and we talked a little bit about a strategy that I could use. So just to recap, the thing that I was um, struggling with in my classroom from watching that first video was that sometimes a student would call out a question, which was totally fine. But then instead of all the other students like waiting and letting, allowing me to respond, uh, other students would just kind of respond of their own accord. And often a few of them would respond at a time. It would be a stack sign. I kind of referred to it as popcorn. And then the class would get a bit rowdy and we'd get off task. And so what we wanted to establish was a norm within the classroom whereby it's okay at the year 12 level for a student to just kind of call out a question, but then other students don't automatically do stacks on. So that's that's that was what we did and that was in line with the usual process. My understanding is the next stage of the process is usually the learn phase. So we do some modeling and developing a checklist and things like that. Did you want to tell us a bit, bit about that stage? What a good question. I would say what happens on the learn stage is to get really clear on exactly what it's going to look like. So the, the change you're going to make, we would really get clear on it. And we would probably spend some time double check. There'd be a sec second conversation after the first one. We probably spent some time asking a little bit more about the goal. Are you sure this is a goal that you you think will really make a, 
unmistakably positive impact on kids' lives, or are we just doing the goal because we're doing the goal? And so once we're, we feel confident we have a powerful goal in the learning stage, my job as coach is just to make sure you're really, you're really clear in your head on what the change is that's going to take place. And often that's done through co-constructing a checklist where we just put it out there. It doesn't have to be in a checklist format, but we, we lay out pretty clearly this is what the difference will be. Because if it's not clear in both of our minds, and I'm not imposing it on you, it's your teaching practice. But if it's not clear in your mind, then when you do it, I mean, whatever you do the first time you do it, it's going to be the worst it's going to be. And if you're not even clear on what it is, it's going to be hard for it to be powerful. And then if we can watch someone else do it, it would be the second part. That's the modeling part. So it could be that if we were working together and I was luckily enough to be in Melbourne and I could come in the classroom and I could model a practice. That would be one way of doing it. I could just do teach some lesson and you could see it. Or we could watch another teacher or we could, we could look at a video or we could co-teach. But then somehow we want to get really clear on what it looks like and also the layout, the steps. And, and to be really clear, I'm not in any way wanting to impose my steps on there, but I also wouldn't be silent. So I'd say, well, what about this? And how do you feel about this? And we would just go back and forth until we had this crystal clear idea of what it should look like in terms of this state this checklist, I guess. And then we get to see somebody else do it. And so I've seen it. I've thought it through. I'm clear in my mind. I'm ready to go. And at the end of the learning stage, the teacher should be confident about implementing the practice and that they're really clear on what it's, it's precisely clear in their heads. And also they're sure they've identified a, a goal that really matters to them. That still could change as you get into the process. But at the end of the learning, at the end of the identify stage, the teacher has a goal they're emotionally committed to that really matters. And at the end of the learning stage, the teacher is ready to implement confidently and, and effectively. That's the idea. Okay. I'm wondering if it's always necessary for that those two stages to be across two different lessons or two different discussions, should I say. So for example, I'm just pulling it up now, but I'm working with a very experienced teacher. You know, he's consistently one of the highest performing teachers in the school, gets great results from his students. And I came in, I observed, we videoed it, he watched it back and he identified that one thing he wants to do is to get the students to do summaries within his classroom. And in that first discussion, he identified that. I asked him, you know, what will what would that look like? You know, tell me in detail what it looks like. And he was able to say, so I've got the checklist in front of me. He said he would want the students to bring their summary sheet with them to every class. He'd want to do a think-pair-share around that. He would then want a cold call on students to say their key points that they took from the lesson. He wanted students to answer in concise but full sentences that were like replicated a summary. Um, the whole process was should take about four minutes. And you can, you can, I love feedback on this checklist as well. Is this the kind of checklist you mean or, or you're thinking of something else? The summary points should take the form of ideas or misconceptions or tips that they can really bank on. And finally, students add summary points to their summary sheet. So this is, you know, a checklist that he and I developed. I must admit, I didn't, I didn't model it. We, we didn't go any further. He just went and the next class, he took that checklist, he checked off he, for the next two classes, he's done that. And we've been having a bit of a chat about that. Is, a couple of questions there. One, is that the kind of checklist you mean when you say checklist? Because I read your book that this was based upon my understanding of that. Hopefully I got it right, but I'd, have, I'd love to have feedback on whether that's the kind of checklist you mean. And two, is this kind of modelling stage always necessary, even when you've got a teacher who feels like they're, they're, they're pretty confident to just run with that? What were the last two things on the checklist? Second last one was 
So the summary points that the students offer up and then write in their book should be take the form of a key idea. For example, a key idea here would be in coaching, it's valuable to use checklists or something like that, or misconceptions. So a misconception here would be often people skip the <laughs> checklist step or something like that or things they can bank on. And the last one was students add the summary points to their summary sheet because you could just have the summary conversation but then only half the students write it on their sheet and they haven't actually got that clear. So what's the, what's the summary sheet? I'm sorry to be... That, no, that's good. So over the course of a unit of work, this teacher would like all of his students to accumulatively build a summary sheet at the end of each lesson. So at the end of each lesson, they reflect, have a discussion, write down the key points from that lesson and add it to this kind of takeaway sheet that then they can use to study and revise and things like that. Okay, so the, the summary they're making is of the, le- of the lesson? Correct. Okay, not of a text. Correct. Okay. So they're learning how to summarize, basically take notes. Yeah, yeah, they take notes as well. But this is really like what are the – you've taken your notes now. Now we're going to reflect. It's a reflection scaffold and what are, what are the real key things you need to just have in your long-term memory. So what was his goal? It's a good question. So th- what this grew out of was I asked the question, you know, students are writing different things down in the classroom. What, well, actually, I, did, I didn't phrase it like that. What did I say? I said, right. I said, how do you want it to look in terms of what students are writing in your classroom and how does that compare to what you saw in the video, something like that. And he said, oh, yeah, that's a good point. You know, actually there's a bit more, it would be great if there was a bit more clarity around that so they all had a consistent um, set of revision notes to work off basically. There, there was this concern that students, some students were leaving with great notes and this teacher talked about his strongest students who automatically just write summaries and that really helps them and then the weaker students who don't do that and suffer because of it. And he said, I want all students to have a really good and concise set of notes and so we developed this process out of identifying that lack. So if we were to say the goal, it was to ensure that every student has a really high quality set of summary notes. Yeah, and probably it's something more than that. I mean, it's not really just that they have notes, but that those notes are helping them learn, you know. And so, so my, my first question would be with him would be, what will be different if you, of course, in the, in the moment, I might forget, but, but if I was on my game, had well rested that previous night, in the moment, I would want to say, okay, so if the kids have those really good notes and they're doing summarizing really effectively, what's going to be different? And then we would try to set a goal where maybe we measure achievement in some way, mm-hmm. whether it's exit tickets or tests or uh, quality of responses in class or something. But there should be a difference in what's happening with the kids. And then, then I would want to focus on that because maybe the change he wants to see in students, it's not really addressed by the notes. Maybe it's something completely different. You know, maybe they don't see relevance. So that's the first thing. Great point. And then the other thing would be, how did he arrive at that goal? You know, if he looked at student work and said, there's this thing that's not happening in my student's work, or there's a step, there's another three steps we can go at. We haven't gone up those steps. and I really think they're important. Then that would be a way the goal could come. Or it could be he watches a video of the class and he realizes these kids aren't really getting a lot of, but I'd want to make sure that the, the, the goal is really grounded in a clear picture of reality and not just, oh, I think they need better notes. Because that, the, the reason is without that, that clear picture of current reality, the, the likelihood of emotional commitment is, is less. So then in terms of the, what you did, if you can do it in one session, I think it's great. So I think what you described sounds great. You know, I, I think in terms of does there need to be modeling or not, 
you know, I mean, is he going to be ready to go? But what I would would say is it's a little bit like formative assessment in the classroom. It looks like people understand, but they don't necessarily they don't have that clarity. I mean, they think they understand, but but that the, the reason for the explicitness of a clearly described thing and modeling done in a partnership way where the other person does it is just to uh, really make sure they're ready to go. You know, so so at the end of the learning stage, we want to make sure the goal the teachers got is one that will make a socially significant difference for kids, and it's really emotionally compelling. And now the teacher's ready to go on how they're going to teach it. I think the checklist sounds like the way I would want a checklist to be. And then in terms of how he t- teaches it, that might be where it could or couldn't be helpful to watch somebody else do it, or you model it, or. You know, the checklist served four purposes, at least, but the way we would say it for one is how to do a process. So the process could be, this is how to create a learning map for your content. Checklists could describe what a good learning map looks like. The checklist could describe how a teacher uses a learning map in class. And the checklist could describe how students use a learning map. So if we take your example of the summarizing, could be this is what the kids need to do. And then there might be a second checklist, not to do checklist overkill, but this is how we'll teach it. So maybe we're going to use uh, modeling or I do it, we do it, you do it, you know, so I can show them how to do it. And because without those extra steps, so that sort of precision and explicitness, you might not get quality implementation. So I think in the moment when you're usually the reason why you need two conversations, let me rephrase it. Why I need two conversations is like, I got to think about this because I don't think I'm really ready to put it all together and go. And uh, I sort of have to remind myself what this looks like and come back and help the teacher be supported. But I think if in the moment, and you know, some things need modeling, some things don't. And so you, you just have to make the decision in our way, nothing's carved in stone. But if you, if you rush the process and you have to go back and redo something, it's not nearly as effective as if you overdo it to redundancy and then you can slack off, you know? So so being really precise and really clear and really careful at the start rather than rushing it, it's probably a better option, I'd say. But, you know, every situation is unique. If it worked, you did a fantastic job. And if it didn't work, you probably still did a fantastic job and there's other things going on. So Yeah, so, so I guess one kind of mental model that's emerging in my mind is basically before the teacher implements, you want to have them have a high level of clarity around what they're going to do. There's a spectrum of clarity and there's certain things that you can do to move them towards high high clarity away from fuzziness. One of those things is checklists. One of those things is modeling. There's probably some other things you can do as well. So it's about using one of those tools or another tool to push that teacher higher to a level of clarity till you're, you're confident and they're confident that it's likely to be implemented with fidelity. Does that sound... Roughly on the right track? Roughly on the right track. There's some words I wouldn't use. So I wouldn't say I'm ever pushing the teacher. I see myself as supporting the teacher to do what she or he wants to do. So I'm really partnering with the teacher. But I'm going to ask questions that should lead to a deeper level of clarity because getting really clear kind of hurts our brains. And we want to just let's just move on, you know. And so I think you kind of have to slow it down and get really, really clear because without the clarity, you could kind of surface implementation, you know, and then I guess if we use the term fidelity, I kind of shy away from that term too. But if I use the term fidelity, I would, if it's fidelity to what the teacher clearly has articulated, then I would say yes, definitely. But it's not fidelity to an external model. We want, we don't necessarily want to do what the book says about how this should be done. 
I want to do what's going to have the greatest chance of having an impact on that on the learning and quality of kids' lives. And that might not be the way it's described by the researcher. You know, what, what this group of students needs, your, your uh, year 12 students are going to be different than, I don't know if you use the term freshmen, but first year students in the, and, you know, ki- kids who are in first year of high school versus the last year of high school, it's going to be a different group of students. And then that group of students is different than the one that you meet next hour. So, so you have to make things, you know, our little sort of cliche phrase that I got from Eric Louis is, it's not one size fits all. It's one size fits one. You have to you have to tailor it to the situation. But so I don't really like the term fidelity because my thing is I don't think we're trying to impose something on the classroom. We're trying to start in the classroom and figure out what works best. And then the part of that is it's it's easy to be too superficial. And I'm a I love like let's move on. Like I have to slow myself down. Otherwise I'm like okay we've, you got it right. I've got it. It's just okay. yeah. It's, it's it's a really interesting thing to think about because there's d- different benefits in different directions. Like in this specific instance that we've been talking about with this checklist for writing the summaries, you know, this isn't something that I've done in my own classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be some other teachers in the school who have done it and feel like it works well. But also like th- we kind of co-constructed this idea during the coaching session. So there's not necessarily – a good model out there to go to. And if I were to do it, model it in this classroom, I wouldn't necessarily do a better job than I probably definitely wouldn't do a better job because I don't know the content than he would himself. So actually in this particular context, finding a model could be challenging. And also for, I'm curious in your thoughts about this, for an experienced teacher who say they, they feel like they know what cold calling is and when you say, okay, let's talk about what cold calling involves, they just give a really clear explanation and they can list out a checklist and they're like, all right, great, I want to try this, then maybe saying, all right, but first let's do some modeling or first I want to input, not necessarily I want to, but there is the option of me modeling it in your classroom or just watching another classroom. Do you think that would be helpful? And they say, oh, no, it's cool, I got this. Do you, do you find that comes up much? I think everything comes up. Like I don't think there's any one thing. But I think if the teacher really is going to do something that's new, that might not be the case with this particular example of the note-taking, but if they're going to do some kind of new teaching and they have a goal they really care about and they really want to implement the strategy effectively, they're going to say, help me if I could see somebody else do this. If I could see how to do it. You know, there's a mountain of research on the power of modeling. So also what I've heard is sometimes people would say, well, I kind of like to watch somebody else do it just to see what it looks like. So if I can pick something up, not that it's going to be better if you do it, uh, but just that it's kind of helpful sometimes to sit back and watch how the class plays out. Because my models aren't going to be that great. I'm kind of rusty. I haven't been in the classroom for a long time. But I just say, you know, would it be helpful if I tried it so you can see how the kids respond? Or And if they say, no, nah, I think I got it. I don't need it. I'm not going to say, oh, no, I really need to do it. I mean, it's their, it's their learning. I'm not there to help them do it. You know, when you do life coaching, like growth coaching, and there's a, there's a point where you're going to say, okay, now you said you want to write this proposal for financing. What's your first step? When are you going to do that step? What's the next step? When's that going to happen? And you, you break it down step by step by step so the person knows what they're going to do and when it's going to happen. And the easy thing is just to sort of back off and say, so you got this. You know, we don't have to do all that. And it's kind of the same thing here. Let's just spell it out. But I'm not going to force it on the teacher. I'm there to provide a support. If it's not helpful and they're like, dude, I've got it, like, come on, 
I don't need a checklist that says, raise my hand. You know, I got it. Then I'm going to back off. I'm going to respond to their, I'm going to respond to what works for them. It's all about what's most helpful to them. But sometimes as a second set of eyes, second set of hands, and as a person who's attuned to the importance of carefully thinking things through, I can, I can help them go to a deeper level. That's what's happening. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But not push them. It's a partnership activity is, is the way it is. So, and they're the ones who decide. I'm not interested in pushing them. I'm interested in being the best partner I can be. Mm-hmm. So just to recap for people, we, we started with the identifier phase of the cycle, which was get a clear picture of current reality, set a goal, identify teaching strategies. Just now we've been talking about the second step in the impact cycle, which is learn, modeling and checklist. We spent a bit of time on this, but I think the one other way we can approach it, because I think it's a really important step and it's probably, I know with previous models of coaching that I've uh, tried to work with, they didn't emphasize this step as, as much. And I think that was a real weakness, especially with novice teachers. So I'm, I'm curious to reflect upon this in the context of our initial discussion about my own classroom, Jim, because we actually left that conversation with a slightly different understanding of what today's conversation was going to be about. I think it's George Bernard Shaw is who says that the greatest problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. And I, so, I think, so I think that that's the case for both of us with that particular discussion. But, but I left going, all right, I'm ready to implement this approach. I'm going to try this in my classroom. And you right. left thinking, oh, next time we're going to come together and actually refine that and talk about maybe develop a checklist or something, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that could happen in a coaching session. Ideally it wouldn't, but it could. So anyway, I went away. I tried it in my classroom. What we talked about was me keeping a tally of how often students responded in an appropriate way, how often they didn't. I tried that for two lessons. I actually just found it like way too cognitively demanding for me to keep that tally while I was teaching, which I should have um, anticipated anyway, given that I've written a book on cognitive load theory. But it, it surprised <laughs> me nonetheless. But I did find that what it did was, because I explicitly announced the, the goal to the students, I talked about why I said I was working with you, Jim, and things like that. So I found that that just building that awareness and I was able to prime them at the start of future lessons and be like, all right, we're going to start instructional time now. Just remember that goal that we're working on, which is that happy to take um, questions from anyone at any time, but I just don't want other people stacking on with responses. If you want to respond, raise your hand. Um, So I I, I struggled to keep track in the moment data. Um, I videoed one lesson. But I'll be honest, I, I also didn't want to be the perfect coachy, Jim, just because we're podcasting this. I'll be honest, I was super busy. I didn't actually have time to re- watch that video back and collect the data. And also I think that was held back a little bit about me thinking, well, how valuable is this act? And this is something I'd love to chat to you about. How valuable is this data? Like it's it's one five-minute period of one one lesson. If there were five disruptions here or, or if there were two or no disruptions here, that doesn't necessarily – it's not necessarily representative of the trend in my – in my classroom. So that's one question. But in general, I'd say that it isn't going as well as I hoped it would. We haven't made the progress. Maybe there's a bit of a trend in a positive direction, but the uncertainty bars on that trend are so large that, you know, I can't actually say with any level of certainty that it's definitely heading in the right direction. I'd love to talk about that. And maybe you can talk about how we would ideally have, or how we now could identify this checklist or this modeling Given, given the context and, and especially given that sometimes I imagine you do do coaching over Skype or over Zoom or something like that and there are constraints like you can't come into my classroom and things like that. Right. I want to say one more thing about your previous one, although you've set this up beautifully and then we'll bring it back, which is that um, 
had you gone to learn as the second stage and not created a checklist in the first stage, you could have said, look, I'm going to do a little searching for different ways of having kids do summarizing, and then I'll come back and, sh- and how to teach them, and then I'll come back and share them. I mean, I'd ask if, would you like me to do that? There's a good chance your teacher would have said, well, if we look at some other ones just to look at and see if there's a good one there, that'd be great. And so in between the first, because a instructional coach as opposed to a life coach is a person who's a curator of knowledge. And so often that knowledge is strategies you've learned over time. You're, you know, in a full-time instructional coach, you're reading materials, you learn a lot, you come back and you do it. And so it may have been for that particular teacher unnecessary, but it also might've been helpful to say, here's a thing you can do, here's how you can measure impact and so forth. So that's one thing. Same thing here, you know, you could have taken that scenario and talked about different options in the learning stage. But what I'm hearing, so what I'm wondering about your situation, which you've got me turned into a coaching mode, even though I said I didn't want to do it, but good for you. Um, How important is the goal first? Like on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being, I really think this is, this is a really important goal. And a one being, I think it's not important at all. How important is it to you? Mm. Yeah, you Seriously. Asked, yeah, you asked me that question last time. Um, I, think, I think I said something around eight. And I think I said something like, like it's, it's important. It's, it's not like the most right. important thing I've ever worked on in my life. And therefore, I'm infinitely excited about it. But it's like super important. And for students to appropriately respond in the class and for me to make retain, support them to retain a high level of focus on the content being taught rather than popcorn answers is crucial to their understanding. Right. So it's still above six? 100%. Yeah. Okay. So what I heard you say is that the gathering data didn't work. It was just too, uh, it just intruded too much on the the actual task of teaching the class. Mm-hmm. For you, you, you use the term cognitive load. Correct. So... Have you given much thought to what you want to do differently? Um, not enough, I would say. I was right. hoping I was hoping that our discussion today would help clarify things a bit. My plan was basically just to keep on reinforcing that norm and to try to be consistent, continually prime them and, and keep working on that. I, I will also say we, I've only had about two or three lessons with actual instruction in them between our two, set, our two discussions, so I was only able to try it a couple of times because there's been a bunch of testing and stuff. So what... What are you doing differently now, if you don't mind me asking? So what's what's different since we had the conversation? What are you trying to do to get your goal is that students, after one student asks a question, you don't have kind of a I think your phrase was popcorn activity where a bunch of kids get off to, and you have to bring you don't waste a lot of instructional time and don't disrupt things. You keep keep focused on the learning. So what what have you done differently to try to make that happen? Yeah, so what I'd say is like probably the most valuable thing for me as a practitioner that came out of our first conversation and that whole process was actually greater clarity around what was causing this issue in my classroom. So before Uh I had the video, watched it, all I knew was that sometimes my class gets a bit rowdy, right? It's like sometimes my class gets a bit rowdy and I have to kind of bring them back. By watching that video, I was able to say, aha, the pattern of the class getting a bit quote unquote rowdy actually is pretty repetitive and predictable. And it's when someone asks a question, sometimes that works when I respond, but sometimes other students jump in and then it kind of is the stacks on, then we have issues. So simply by my awareness being raised to that, I am now more sensitive in the classroom to that happening. And so one thing I've done is I've primed, like I say, primed the students before an instructional period and I'm saying, all right, 
remember this norm that we're trying to establish. But the other thing is I just notice faster when it's happened and so I might just say, everyone stop, stop, stop. Okay, thanks. Now Harry asked the question, remember our norm. I'm going to respond to it unless someone else would like to. Does anyone like to raise their hand? And so I've just been able to do that. I'd say I've done that like four or five times over that period of a few lessons. And so it's raised my awareness to what's happening. I've been able to jump in quicker and stop that process from running away. And that also helps them to raise their awareness to that behavior and how that gets out of hand sometimes. And so that's that's what's changed in my classroom. So how's it working? As I said before, I feel like there's a trend in the positive direction. Right. But I would need, I think I need to continue to reinforce it for it to become a pattern. That's the main sense I have. I also heard you don't want to, you can't keep track of the data. Like you can't, you don't have time to watch the video and don't have time to really process. That's perfectly cool. I I think I probably could, I could probably do video. I definitely can't do it in the moment. I guess there was a bit of, I was curious about your thoughts about that data and the kind of the validity of that data and things like that it, when every day is different and things like that. And, 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 and it's not that I don't have time to watch a video. It's that, you know, everything has an opportunity cost and it's like, could I be planning the next lesson better instead of watching the video or something like that? Right. Right. Do you, do you drive to school? I ride my bike to school. Okay. Well, there goes that idea because you could audio record the class and listen to the audio while you drive is what I was thinking. I do listen to podcasts on my bike, so I could do that actually. Yeah. I could do that. What do you think of that idea, though? There goes your podcast. That's your opportunity cost. <laughs> yeah, that is that is the opportunity cost. Well, let's talk about some other options. What are some easier, easier ways to gather data than that? One is you could audio record the class. What else could you do? Well, let's let's first talk about the goal of gathering this data. So, so my understanding is there'd be kind of two key goals. For it. One is to see if what I'm doing is actually working, and the other is to work out if. Well, another is to work out if I'm actually doing what I think I'm doing, gaining a clear picture of reality. And another is that's related to perhaps a third one, which is, you know, can, could I actually improve what I'm doing? Right. Right. So they're the goals of, of the data. So so for me to think about that, I'd say that I guess I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts on I, – I try things in my class all the time, right? I've, I've been doing heaps of stuff with my year nines about norms and things like that. I've tried different worked examples. I haven't collected data on any of this stuff, but – I can tell when things are getting better and when they're not. And I still haven't collected data on this stuff with my E12s, but I can say that I think it's slightly better, but it's not heaps better. So I guess I'm wondering um, in terms of that, if we're on the right track question, the value that data brings to that where I feel that I've already got a pretty high level of a sense of, of whether we're getting better at that or not. So I'd love to hear thoughts on that. Well, I think it's your data. I mean, the person, the person, the purpose of the data is to tell you what you need to see. Mm-hmm. And if you can, you can kind of make an estimate, today was a good day or on a scale of one to five, today was a four, or, you know, if you can do it just sort of holistically think, looking at the end of the class, mm-hmm. I, I think go for it. The, the risk from my perspective, and you know yourself better than I do, but my worry would be that your subjective interpretation isn't, isn't all that accurate but uh, you know you can tell you can still get a good sense of it and and really a less than perfect understanding considering opportunity cost might be plenty you know might, might be plenty effective enough another, you know another option and I'm not suggesting this I'm just throwing it out there as, as an option but it would be to say well 
on a, every two weeks, I'll record a class and just listen to it and see, see if it's what I, you know, make an estimate before I listen to it and see if I've got the same thing. But you have to make the decision, is it worth the effort? Or is my, you know, if you're teaching a class and you feel it's going the way you want, you don't have to watch the recording to get it. It's not like we're doing rigorous research here. It's really about the learning for the students and how you feel about how the learning is proceeding. What do you think the students think about it? I'm curious. I just want to make a comment on one other thing before I get to that yeah. one. I think I'm just reflecting now on my hesitance to watch that video, this second video. And I actually think it's because of this idea of me collecting the quantitative data actually. Like I'm actually, the the idea of like recording a class and watching it back or even listening to it while I ride my bike, that's actually really interesting to me. And like the first time, the first video that I sent you, like I watched that without speeding it up, which is very rare that I watch anything without speeding it up. I watched that mm-hmm. without speeding it up the whole, you know, 55 minutes, even the like 20 minute period where they were just working silently because that was absolutely fascinating to me just to be able to sit in my own class and watch it. And I got, got to know the boys better. I got, got gained better insight into what I do, how I present and things like that. And that was really motivating for me. I was actually interested to watch the second video I made. I was really interested. But I don't think I watched it because I was like, I'm trying to like keep a tally. I'm going to be sitting there keeping a tally of what's going on in my classroom. And that's boring because I'm not convinced about how reliable that data is. This is a weird sample. There's so many things. It's just one sample in time. It's not going to give me a clear picture. So I think the idea that I was going to try to keep a tally and then I'd have to go back to the initial video, take a tally in that one and see if a number went down. I was like... That's demotivating for me. So maybe if I just took more of a qualitative approach to it about, you know, we're trying to gain an objective picture of reality. That's not necessarily a quantitative one, but it could be a qualitative one. It's hard for me to do that in real time in the classroom because lots of stuff goes on that I don't notice, etc. So maybe just collecting the video or the audio, reviewing that back would have the motivational benefit, help me continue to refine my picture of reality and help me to see basically hit those three goals that I talked about before. See if it's working, identify whether I can improve anything and identify if what I think is happening is, is really happening. How does that sound? I like. I mean, if you like it, I like it. I mean, I think you have to say what's going to be most helpful to you. And it sounds more efficient. You know, I think the important person and who likes it is it's you, but I like it <laughs> for what it's worth. I think it sounds... It sounds more sensible. And I don't even know if I'd want to watch. Well, I mean, there are other things you can learn from the video too. So there's a lot of good you can get from it. What were your three things again? You said you want to see, give me the three things again. Three goals. So, so like what would you get out of watching the video? Yeah. So the question you asked me was, you know, three, three or four minutes ago, you said, well, what are some other ways you could collect data? And I said, well, let's step back and talk about the goals of what collecting data are. And I said, one is to actually work out if the, what I'm doing is working. If, it's get, if things are getting better, which in my mind prior to that was like collect quantitative data, but that can be qualitative. Is it working? Am I actually doing what I think I'm doing in the classroom? Um, because right. often there's a gap between what I think I'm doing and what I am actually doing. So raising that awareness. And the third one is trying to work out if there's anything I could be doing better. Right. Yeah, that's great. I think maybe you could just jot some notes down about those three questions Well, whatever works for you, you know, but I think those, those, to look at the video with those three questions in mind to me would be really helpful or listen to the audio, you know, since it's really about that activity. There are, there is probably a, like body language is probably a big part of how you handle it. So there'd be value in watching the video, but that sounds, that sounds good. And I think you just try it and see, you know, 
we were having an ongoing coaching conversation. These are things I could do. I could look at the video and come back and say, here's, here's how much time it was or however you want me to do it. You know, I think from the qualitative perspective, it's your, it's your perspective on it. It's really how you see it, mm. you know, that, that works. I think it's whatever helps you see how to answer those three questions that matters. I was curious what you think the think students think about it. Yeah, true, true, true. And my question really is, I wonder if they could, and I'm just throwing this out again yeah. as an option. You know your class better mm. than I do, but could could they be a part of the process? Mm. Like they help gather data or they're, they're somehow, they're coaching each other on how to do this or something. I don't know. Yeah. Just to put it out there. Yeah, it's a good question. I wouldn't want them to collect data because then they'd have the same extraneous cognitive load issue that I did. They wouldn't be able to focus on the instruction. I think raising their awareness to it more like it would be great to be to the point where if you were like what's Mr. Lovell working on at the moment every student could answer that question I'd say we're not there yet but I'd say if if we if I could be repetitive enough that they can say that then that would be really valuable and I'll work on that we've got six minutes um, I'm really keen to get on one to one big question Jim so and this is about this I have is, one for you so okay all right so this is the this is about the directive dialogic facilitative spectrum of, te- of coaching. And this is the biggest thing I've been thinking about, about your model and other models over the last couple of weeks. And also talking to other people on Twitter and various avenues on. We accept that teachers come on a spectrum from novice to expert, you know, and what we know from cognitive load theory and many models of instruction is that novices, this is called the expertise reversal effect, novices be- benefit more from explicit instruction, clear modeling, worked examples, things like that. Experts benefit more from more problem-based approaches, inquiry, explorative, things like that. We accept that when teachers are in initial teacher education at universities and stuff, we put them, we sit them down as students and we actually, you know, we teach them stuff about teaching. There's probably, there's other effective ways to teach people stuff about teaching, but that was one way. We sit them down and then when they're expert teachers, you know, they can work it all out for themselves. Um, we, we take more of a facilitative approach. I guess what I'm wondering is by taking a primarily dialogic approach with teachers during coaching, are we actually leaving something on the table? Could it be that when teachers, for example, come out and they're first year teachers or when we've somehow identified that we're a nov- they're a novice teacher, which is a very hard thing to do, granted, would it actually be valuable to say in your first year of coaching as a first year teacher, you're, there's actually going to be a directive approach and here are 10 strategies that at our school we use and we're going to make sure you nail every one of those 10 strategies and when you've... Ex- just demonstrated mastery in those 10 strategies, we're going to move into a dialogic approach to you. To me, that would better, some, that or something like that would better reflect the expert to spectrum and the expertise reversal effect that I spoke about earlier. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think what you're describing is teaching something to people, whether they see the need or whether they want it or not. And uh, you're describing the strategy to classroom model versus the classroom to strategy model. You know, it's worth a try, but there's an awful lot of evidence that real learning happens in real life, happens in the classroom when you're struggling. So if you have a new teacher who comes to you and says, I know we've got these 10 things we're trying to learn, but I just can't get my students to sit down. I can't get them to listen. Or when I ask questions, there's just no response. Or I don't know if my kids are learning and I'm really concerned about it. And when you respond to that felt need on the part of the teacher, the chances they'll sustain the learning to and I think research would support this out, is much more likely than if, okay, which one are we on now? Which one have we learned so far? You know, I think in your dialogical approach, you scaffold the extent of your support. And so you could have clear in your mind, here are some 
some things we need to do. And here's a, and you can do those kind of workshops. There's nothing wrong with them at the awareness level for people to know about it. But to get to proficiency, it's really, it's really more likely if it's responding to a felt need on the part of the teacher. So if you have a teacher whose class is out of control, if you go in and fix the problem for them, it's not as powerful as if they fix their own problem with your support. And you can provide a lot of options. You can say, here's one thing, here's another thing. Just, but I think if they're not making a choice, if they're not reflecting on their practice, if they're not thinking about how does this fit into this issue in my classroom, they're not going to own it in the same way as if they go to a bunch of workshops on how to do it or mm -hmm. somebody observes them and tell them. So to me, to me, the starting with the classroom backwards. Now, don't get me wrong. Well, first off, you can have expertise isn't necessarily directly correlated with grade level either. You know, there, there are probably a lot of first year and second year teachers in this time of COVID who are actually much more expert at technology than teachers who've taught for 15 and 20 years. So, but I think, I think it's, in theory, it sounds great. We will just teach teachers to do these 10 things and they will do them. But they often don't get beyond kind of sort of mechanical or just awareness level because what really drives transformation of professional practice is real life learning, where you're applying it to a real life issue in your classroom. You're messing around with it. How will it work? How's this gonna how's this gonna happen? You know, you can go to a you can go to a workshop on how to be a good swimmer, but you're not gonna get it till you get in the pool. Now I once was heard told that. Actually, my son learned how to swim by watching YouTube. But nonetheless, theoretically, at least, you should probably have to get in there and do it. So, but where I think the model, but I don't think the two things are inconsistent. I think the thing is, if I have someone who's new and they really need something and they really want it, I don't say to them, you know, other times you've been trying to learn something. What have you done that worked? I, I, I say, let's, here, I'll help you do it. But the more I can make it a choice, more helpful it's going to be the more it's and if, it, if it's not responding to a felt need it's not going to be the same so i mean people have learned an enormous amount about technology in zoom during this time in various platforms during this time when we've had COVID, and they've gone and they've asked for help but i just think you you absolutely can scaffold your support but it still needs to be there still needs to be reflection on the part of the practitioner and that reflection involves yes or no and choice. If I can't say no, then there's no reflection. I'm just doing what I was told. Yeah, I guess I guess to push back against that in in some way, I, did, I first of all agree with almost everything you said there. I think that reflection can happen in the con one way to talk about it would be a curriculum. You know, so I'd suggest that within a curriculum, which would be what we would do in first year with first year teachers or early career or novice or whatever you want to call them, there could be a curriculum and they could reflect on that in the same way as our students can reflect in our classrooms when we're working with a curriculum and we specify what could be learned. But I wish we had more time to explore this, Jim, because it's such a big issue. Well, I don't, I don't like we talk about an instructional playbook and I, I don't think that there's a problem with saying these are some core practices that are helpful to every teacher and having workshops on them and sharing them. I think where it becomes a problem is where it becomes a kind of a, a replacement for reflective practice in the classroom. And I think the, re the, real, the real transformation happens when, they, when they're trying to decide, will I do it like this or will I? And then if you have a coach, they can even take it to a deeper level because the coach can say, well, what about this option? And so, so, so here's my question for you, because I, I got to go here real quickly, but did you feel like you were in control of this conversation? Like, did you feel like you got a chance to choose or did you feel I was telling you what to do? I definitely felt I was in control of the conversation. But, yeah, 
I did, but I, I guess I'm just the first thing my mind goes to there is like my job is to be in control of conversations. Like that's what the fuck, right. and that's something I do in most con- scenarios. Like right. I generally feel like I'm in control of the conversation, but I also I've really really valued the opportunity to work with you, Jim. I'm so grateful for you. I'm giving up so much of your time. My understanding is that this is probably the most time you have given up to any podcast. So I'm immensely grateful for that, and I have picked up many things. From from you just it's it's many of them are very subtle the way you talk the way you turn a phrase you know a couple of times that I propose a few things and you say I wouldn't quite use those word I wouldn't quite use the word push I wouldn't quite use the word fidelity things like that and these are the really I mean you, you offer so much from the structural level for coaches I think that's like here's how to become a good coach but in from moving to that from that okay I'm a competent or good coach to the level of an expert coach or a great coach I think a lot of that has come out through the ability to really observe you in action in conversation with me through this session and the last session so I'm so grateful for you to for coming on and sharing your expertise and experience Jim hey I'm grateful to you and you you really pushed my thinking. Maybe we wouldn't use pushed, but nonetheless, <laughs> facilitated my thinking. You know, when you asked about achievement and shouldn't coaching lead to changes in achievement, and I was like, I had an analogy that the more I thought about it, I think you're absolutely right. So that was a really valuable learning experience I got from you. So this was clearly symbiotic. I'm reciprocal. I'm grateful for the chance to learn from you. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Eat Triller podcast with Jim Knight. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollielovell.com, inclusive of that link to the John Cat website. And remember the code ERRR30 for 30% off any book from John Cat. And also a reminder of the upcoming full-day professional learning session right here in Victoria on instructional coaching. If you're keen to hear more about that or future opportunities to learn more about instructional coaching, whether in person or online, please shoot me an email at ollie at ollielovell.com. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts or reflections from this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.